This is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Lizzie Peabody. William Bennett remembers the morning a mysterious package showed up at his office, wrapped up like a baby in a blanket. It was encased in a Chelsea flower market tote used to carry it on its journey here to us in Washington, D.C. This was no baby. It was a bundle of folded court documents, old ones, 235 years old, anonymously donated to the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives. William is a conservator at the archives, and this was not the first mysterious pile of old papers to come his way. And he figured this one would probably be more or less like the others. When I pulled this out of the container that it came to us in, I thought it was going to be absolutely boring. Dry as dust, a whole lot of legal language, and not much interest. But William was wrong. Oh, so wrong. He just didn't know it yet. Buyer said Bill. William led me through the Smithsonian Archives reading room, which is a light, airy space full of large tables. And in the middle of the room, laid out on a table, was the mystery document, which turned out to be an 18th century land deed. This is like a small blanket. Well, it's very much so, and it's big. But yeah, this is large. It actually can be hard to handle for one person. The pages of the deed are thick and brittle. They crinkle as William carefully turns them. The parchment is made from animal skin. On the back side of the parchment, I can see the little, like, goosebumps of the, of the animal. These are essentially hair follicles. It's probably sheepskin. We're not totally sure. Oh, really? Like, how many sheep are on this, in this document? Probably one for each sheep of parchment. Whoa! So this is 16 sheep. There's a whole flock of sheep. <laughs> but the information inside didn't exactly flock to William. Once he had the thing open, he had to read it which is harder than it sounds. The script is full of swoopy flourishes. It almost looks like it's written in Elvish, straight out of Lord of the Rings. It took a fair amount of practice for me to be able to read this fluently. Can I try reading? Oh yeah, absolutely. Soda. Refer pertaining over particular amount of the... Listen, I did my best, which wasn't great. But some of these words I have never even seen before. They literally don't exist anymore. I don't know what that word is. Size? Forages? Farms and lands? Uh, So not bad. Okay. Not bad. (laughs) So what we've got here is messwages, farms, lands, tenements, and hereditaments. What was that? Messwages? Messwages, yeah. It's like messages plus sandwiches? Sort of, yeah. We got a U in there where uh, the A of messages is meant to be. Messages. messages is like something that relates to a piece of property. And property, specifically who it belongs to, well, that's what this document is all about. It's a deed to lands owned by the Hungerford family. The Hungerford Deed. More than half of this document is actually a very juicy family feud worthy of any Masterpiece Theater production. (laughs) But this isn't just some 200-year-old tea we're spilling. What William found in this deed has relevance today. The deed offers us this tortured family history of disagreement and squabble 
that ultimately really impacted our understanding of how the Smithsonian came to be. So this time on Side Door, we'll dig into the roots of this family tree and find out how one family's obsession led to the creation of the world's largest museum, education, and research complex. Right after these messages. Don't go away. Hey there, Side Doorables. A quick favor. We're conducting a listener survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill it out and give us a sense of who you are. Please visit survey.prx.org slash side door to take the survey. That's survey.prx.org slash side door. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. In the mid-1700s, Elizabeth Macy was living a comfortable life in the quiet countryside of Bath, England. She was a childless widow, living alone. Her husband had been dead for 13 years when she got some surprising news. She's about 36 years old when she realizes that she's pregnant. It must have been incredibly shocking. This is author and historian Heather Ewing. She says this was no immaculate conception. I mean, Elizabeth did have a lover. And not just any lover. She was likely already several years into a relationship with the Duke of Northumberland. This was the Georgian era of England. Think Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Birth status meant a lot. And in that sense, Elizabeth couldn't have chosen a better father for her child than a duke. Except the duke was married to Elizabeth's cousin. So she was in a tight spot. And to make matters worse... The 1760s in England sees the rise of essentially the equivalent of the tabloids we have today. There was a new little gossip magazine on the scene called Town and Country, and the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland were all over it. The papers would report on their parties and their dresses and what they were doing in their houses. So he is a popular subject for these magazines. So to ward off any scandal, Elizabeth did what most wealthy women at the time did when they were unmarried and pregnant. She went to Paris. And hidden away in the city of love, Elizabeth gave birth to a baby boy. She named him James. And she couldn't give him his father's last name, so... She gave the boy the name of her late husband, Macy, so that it might at least appear that he was legitimate. For those not good at math. Exactly. (laughs) Now, Elizabeth Macy, lover to the Duke of Northumberland, she was no commoner herself. She and her family... They were descendants of a very prominent and wealthy medieval family called the Hungerfords. The Hungerfords were wealthy, married into royalty, and owned a lot of land. 
Their list of illustrious ancestors included the godfather to King Henry VI and Sir Thomas Hungerford, Speaker of the House of Commons in 1377. And at the height of their influence, they even had a castle in London. But at this point, a lot of that wealth and prestige had diminished. Well, a distant cousin had to sell the family castle in order to pay debts. They were... I hate it when you have to sell the family castle. Right? Yeah. I would be so disappointed if I had to sell mine. Very annoying. So in 1765, Elizabeth's brother, heir to the dwindling Hungerford fortune, he died. His name was Lumley Hungerford Keats. So he was... Lumley? Lumley, yes. Mm. Anyway, he died with no will and no heirs. It was kind of a mess. So all his property passed to his sisters, Elizabeth and Henrietta. But... They inherited it jointly. So something had to be done in order for them to divide the properties between themselves. And that is the, the origin of the Hungerford deed. But it wasn't entirely clear if Lumley owned all the properties. And some cousins were living on the land that Elizabeth and Henrietta inherited. So imagine inheriting a bunch of land, and then you find out that your cousins are actually living on that land, and you're like, hey, get off my land. And they're like, it's our land, actually. And then you sue them, and they sue you back, and the lawsuits just keep on going. That's pretty much what happened. They were very happy to sue and countersue throughout their period of time here. I'm just getting this image of like a family that kind of sits around in their drawing room playing cards and casually suing each other. (laughs) It seems pretty heartless, suing your cousins. But the thought of this land belonging to someone else really chafed Elizabeth's petticoat. She wholeheartedly believed that these properties were her birthright. Heather Ewing refers to this as a cult of ancestry. To illustrate just how powerful this idea of birthright was, remember the ancestor who was Speaker of the House in 1377? Well, over 400 years later, in the 18th century, the family still had the robe he wore as Speaker. It had been passed down for centuries as a family heirloom and was used as a christening gown. So that there was this kind of sense that you were being baptized into this powerful family. Whoa. Okay, so they they took themselves pretty seriously. Very. Elizabeth and her sister won the lawsuits against their cousins. But then they turned on each other. Henrietta wound up with the larger portion of land. So she agreed to pay Elizabeth cash to balance things out. But when it was time to pay up, Henrietta just sort of stopped taking Elizabeth's calls. Elizabeth waited for her sister to honor their agreement. But after hearing nothing, for years, she finally bunched up her skirts beneath her heirloom desk, lit her candle, and put quill to parchment. Dearest Henrietta, she furiously scratched, I will have no choice but to produce upon oath one final fiery warning. See you in court. The lawsuits and drama lasted for 18 years. And in the end, Elizabeth gained control of a number of lands in the west of England. But along with that, she also gained a reputation. She was described as shrill. She was a very passionate person. She was a litigious person. Also had a very fiery temper. Haughty. Really intense. Smart. And she was able to get what she wanted and needed. And the Hungerford Deed gives us a pretty vivid picture of who Elizabeth Macy was but even more importantly, of the family environment in which she raised her son, James. Because throughout all of this, James Macy grew up. 
He was a bastard in a hierarchical society that cared all about family pedigree. His mother sued everyone she knew, and his father, while a duke, refused to acknowledge him. And this lack of a father figure in particular had a huge impact on him. You are outside of of society in many ways um, without a father. And it did carry a stigma in a way that it's hard for us to understand uh, today. One of the things that was quite poignant is this sort of rite of passage that happened to young men who went to Oxford at this time, that when you enrolled, um, you would sign your name in this register. And one of the few pieces of information that was inscribed in this, in this register was the name of your father. James left the name of his father blank. And for pages and pages, years before and after him, it's the only place where there's a blank. The blank let everyone know James had no father. Other students who signed their name after noticed it too, and they remembered. His friend Davis Giddy, who was a year or two behind, recalled this blank, I mean, decades later, like in the 1820s. Really? He didn't have that to publicly claim even though he knew who his father was. So by now, James's illegitimacy was public knowledge, but his paternity stayed a secret to everyone except James, who privately yearned for any form of recognition from his father. Now, in a masterpiece theater version of this story, the Duke grows older and older, and finally, as he teeters at the edge of death, He holds on just long enough for someone to fetch his illegitimate son, and James would rush to his father's side, and the Duke would lament tears of agony over withholding affection from his son, and he would tell James that he'd loved him from afar all these years and bequeath a title and money with his final breath. But that's not what happened. In real life, the Duke just died, and that was that. Meanwhile, James graduated from Oxford. He became a chemist and a mineralogist and was known as a nomadic bachelor who loved to gamble. He published 27 scientific papers, discovered a new mineral, and became revered for his geologic study of Scotland's famous Fingal's Cave. I mean, he's just incredibly dogged in his pursuit of knowledge. And there's a hotel keeper when he's on one of his trips, and the hotel man charges him all this extra money because he says he's brought rocks and dirt into the room. And of course, these are all <laughs> collections that he's been out gathering. And and um, and so, you know, this it's just kind of an example of of um, of how passionate he is. James sought solace in science. Unlike the social realm, the laws of nature applied equally to everyone. This was the Enlightenment, or Age of Reason, and scientists were becoming celebrities. And James was a rock star of the natural science world. But he had a chip on his shoulder. He wrote, The best blood of England runs through my veins. On my father's side, I am a Northumberland. On my mother's, I am related to kings. But this avails me not. My name will live on in the memory of men when the titles of the Northumberland and the Percys are extinct or forgotten. It shows, again, this, well, if I can't have a family legacy, I may as well have one that's in science. 
When James was about 35, his mother died, and her death presented the opportunity he had waited for. He immediately took steps to change his name. James changed his name to the first Duke of Northumberland's original surname, Smithson. James Lewis Macy was the birth name of Smithsonian founding donor James Smithson. After 35 years of illegitimacy, James claimed his name, and in doing so, began creating the ultimate legacy. That's coming up after the break. We're back. It's the year 1800, and our chemist James Macy has just changed his name to James Smithson. Having finally claimed the name of his father, James spent the next several decades doing important scientific work and making money. That mineral he discovered was named Smithsonite, and it's important for brass production. He racked up a fortune, and learning from his uncle Lumley's mistakes, he began to write his will. It's a really curious will. I don't think there's another one like it. Smithson had enough money to hire a lawyer to draft such an important document, but he wrote it himself and he included two especially quirky clauses. The first clause of the will is that the money is to go to the nephew, and then there's this other clause that says if the nephew dies without any children, the children can be legitimate or illegitimate, which is also unusual, but makes sense for Smithson. Then the money is to go to the United States of America. Smithson wrote, I bequeath the whole of my property to the United States of America to found in Washington under the name of the Smithsonian Institution, an establishment for the increase in diffusion of knowledge among men. Now, keep in mind that James Smithson had never been to America. Boats made him seasick. But he saw the United States as the antithesis of England, built on democracy rather than birth status and privilege. So he took a gamble and placed his bet on a new country. And with everything unconventionally squared away, James moved to Genoa, Italy. And after a long illness we don't really know much about, he died at the age of 64. And when he died, Smithson's inheritance went to his nephew. But only six years later... His nephew dies, and this United States learns to their shock that they are the beneficiary of this unbelievable gift. So across the ocean, Congress gets the news that some guy they've never heard of has left them with a few big buckaroos, and they're like, who? How much? Why? Wait, a British guy? Remember, only 52 years before, the U.S. fought Britain for independence. And during the War of 1812, only 21 years before, the British invaded Washington, D.C. and set it on fire. Needless to say, Congress was suspicious. And England was downright pissed. England was not that psyched to see that money leave the country. But in 1838, Smithson's bequest, the modern equivalent of around $100 million, was boxed up and shipped to the United States. Where it sat. For a decade. Congress did not know what to do with the money. Mostly because no one knew what an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge was. 
Was it a university? A laboratory? A school for teachers? A museum? Shockingly, Congress could not agree. It is the case that the Smithsonian could have easily not ever happened. Um, so it is kind of incredible that they did finally manage to compromise and create a bill. Finally, on August 10, 1846, Congress passed legislation that created the Smithsonian Institution, which included a little bit of everything. The museum, the laboratory, the library, um, research and publications, all sorts of things that we know the Smithsonian to be today. James Smithson may not have lived long enough to see the institution that is his namesake, but he was able to visit many years later. In 1903, 74 years after Smithson's death, the city of Genoa, Italy, was going to bulldoze the cemetery where his remains were buried. Now, by this time, the Smithsonian Institution was well established, and the red sandstone castle stood proudly on the National Mall. So the city of Genoa called up the Smithsonian and said, hey, your guy's here, do you want his body or what? And the Smithsonian's board members were like, hmm, no thanks. Well, all except one. Alexander Graham Bell. This is Richard Curran, distinguished scholar and ambassador at large for the Smithsonian. He says Bell was a member of the Smithsonian's board at the time, and as a scientist and a philanthropist, he felt a connection to Smithson. We felt like Smithson had done a great thing and deserved more recognition than to, you know, kind of just see his remains go by the wayside. He even offered to pay himself to go and get Smithson's remains. It took some convincing, but Bell was given the go-ahead to bring Smithson's body to America. He arrived in Genoa, Italy on Christmas Day, 1903. And he finds it's not so easy to kind of remove a body. Uh, you know, <laughs> was he, uh, did he just bring his own shovel? No, not quite. <laughs> uh, but he had to get permits. You know, it's, it, it's a complicated thing. There's some legal red tape. Yeah, uh, you know, the story is that Bell, you know, bribed a lot of folks. He had a lot really? of Really? Yeah, yeah. We won't ask too many questions about that part. But eventually, Bell was successful. Smithson was exhumed packed in a casket, and for the first time ever, set sail for America. And he arrived in style. President Teddy Roosevelt had the U.S. Navy greet the boat at the entrance to the harbor. The U.S. Cavalry met them at the dock. And as Smithson's casket was loaded onto a horse-drawn wagon, draped in American and British flags, the Marine Band played Nearer My God to Thee. And the whole parade made its way to the Smithsonian Castle. Bell made a speech. Smithson was home. But once the pomp and circumstance died down, the Smithsonian was left with this question. What to do with the body? Like, where to put it? <laughs> do you put this on exhibit? No, they did not put him on display. Instead, the Smithsonian sponsored a competition to design a memorial for Smithson. One of the plans was to build something that, you know, would have been several times the size of the Lincoln Memorial. Whoa. But that didn't end up happening. Eventually, instead of a memorial... They took a janitor's closet at the north entrance of the castle and remodeled a janitor's closet <laughs> to be the crypt of James Smith. <laughs> okay, I had to see this. So I asked Richard Curran to show me the crypt. 
So here we are at the uh, entrance to the castle uh, along the National Mall. And as you come in the front door, you turn to your left, and there is the uh, Smithson Crypt, uh, which was originally the janitor's closet. <laughs> <laughs> at least now it has an arched doorway. Through the doorway stands Smithson's enormous marble tombstone, brought to the U.S. from the Genoa Cemetery. It's a big slab of marble, about 10 feet tall. And centered behind the grave marker is a green stained glass window that gives the space a kind of chapel-esque feel. The grave marker is framed by two flags, the American flag on the left and the British flag on the right. And on top of it is a clawfoot marble urn that looks kind of like a miniature ornate bathtub with a lid. And people think, okay, well, Smithson must be buried in this urn-like structure. But he's not. At the bottom of the grave marker is a base made of reddish-brown stone. They took out this stone, oh. and he slid in under there. He's like yeah. right, right, he's right here. at foot yeah. level, basically. Right at foot level, yeah. The noble heir, born in secret, now lies at rest in public. Smithson was born into a world obsessed with pedigree, but denied his family heritage. So he turned to democracy and science to forge a new legacy. And it's a legacy that persists today, far greater than any he could have imagined, with 26 million people visiting the museums each year, a magazine, a TV channel, all bearing his name, a name he chose for himself. And because of the hunger for deed, we have a clearer image now of who the Smithsonian's founder really was. When I walk by that crypt room and I see Smithson here, and I think, my God, nobody even knows that this person, that there's a person behind it. It's a Smithsonian institution, well known around the world. And yet most people don't even know that this person existed and had a life. listening to Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. Believe me when I tell you, you want to see pictures of the Hungerford Deed. It's only nine years younger than the U.S. You can find those in our newsletter. We'll also include photos of Richard Curran and me in the Smithson Crypt. And if you haven't had enough family drama, we'll also include a link to the web exhibit, A Tale of Two Sisters, which will give you the nitty gritty of all those Hungerford lawsuits. Special thanks to William Bennett, masterpiece theater enthusiast and conservator at the Smithsonian Institution Archives, to Heather Ewing, associate dean at the New York Studio School and author of The Lost World of James Smithson, and to Richard Curran, distinguished scholar and ambassador at large at the Smithsonian. And we are celebrating our 175th anniversary of the founding of the Smithsonian. So we just wanted to say happy birthday to us and thank you, James Smithson. Our podcast team is James Morrison, Natalie Boyd, Ann Kananen, Caitlin Schaefer, Tammy O'Neill, Jess Sadek, Lara Koch, and Sharon Bryant. Episode artwork is by Dave Leonard. Extra support comes from Jason and Genevieve at PRX. Our show is mixed by Tarek Fuda. Our theme song and episode music are by Breakmaster Cylinder. This is our final episode of the season. We'll be back in June with more stories for you, but keep an eye on our podcast feed because we'll be sending a few surprises your way. 
In the meantime, you can keep up with us on Twitter, at SideDoorPod, on Instagram, at SideDoorPod, or via email. Our email address is sidedoor at si.edu. Drop us a line, let us know what you think of the show, and let us know if there's something you're especially excited to hear about next season. And if you would like to sponsor our show, visit sponsorship at prx.org. I'm your host, Lizzie Peabody. Thanks for listening. I can't even read these big words. That looks like H. Hornen. January. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It gets easier with practice. (laughs) From PRX.